So good evening. One of your uh, beloved fellow yogis just uh, whispered to me as I walked in the door in a slightly menacing way, this better be good. Coben Chino again. Um, uh, I, I, my understanding of this, this um, uttered this not long before he died. <clears throat> uh, we sit to make <clears throat> to make life meaningful. The significance of our life is not experienced in striving to create some perfect thing. We must simply start with accepting ourselves. Sitting brings us back to actually who and where we are. This can be very painful. Self-acceptance is the hardest thing to do. If we can't accept ourselves, we're living in ignorance this darkest night. We may still be awake, but we don't know where we are. We cannot see. The mind has no light. Practice is this candle in our very darkest room. Anatta, the teachings on not-self, seem to stand in, in distinction to what Covencino Roshi is saying here something different, anatta, not self, different than self-acceptance, self-acceptance. But in a way, the teachings on not self, anatta is is just self-acceptance taken to an extreme degree, paired with lucid awareness. The insight into not-self is such a profound affirmation of everything the self is. And so um, I think um, as in the process of extrapolating what is a kind of renunciate monastic tradition into lay life, we're actually in the kind of early phases of that process. And what, what are, how does this come to, to incarnate in a lay life? And I have so much kind of, yeah, reverence for the renunciate path for, for the, the monastics that have uh, really led led the way in a lot of a lot of senses, and temperamentally have a lot of that in me. Um, and when I was new to practice, I would sometimes kind of wonder, like, look, if I love this as much as I say I do, as much as I think I do, as much as it feels like I do, why have I not devoted my life to it? And 
I kind of lived with that question for quite a while and, uh, you know, the, the wondered, like, is it m- m- purely my own clinging or self-indulgence that's keeping me in a lay life, not a monastic life? And um, I think um, it, it's probably partially my clinging, but not merely my clinging. There are some differences in, obviously, in lay life and monastic life. And one of the key ones to my mind that um, in the monastic tradition, as I, as I know it, um, relationship is prized and relationship is in service of something else, namely liberation, wise friendship, kalyanamitta, in service of becoming free, necessary on the path, it is said, to becoming free. In lay life, relationship, in a sense, is an end in itself. It's not in service of some other goal. It, it, it's, it's not leveraged for the purpose of something else. Of course, it may serve our own awakening, in fact does, but it, it is a kind of end in itself. And in making relationship, you know, and I'll use that word in the broadest sense, making relationship an end in itself, we open ourselves to new delights, and simultaneously guarantee certain forms of dukkha. We just have to consent to that in a way. And to make another a kind of end in themselves, not a sort of element of, of one's own path of liberation. Um yeah, we, we really consent to carry some measure of their suffering. We consent to some measure of grieving because um, no matter how beautiful, we know how, how all stories end. Things change. And so... Uh, in this realm, we have to um, to navigate themes of connection and merging and individuality. And I wanted to uh, to reflect on this, reflect on self and connection and boundaries and non-duality in the relational world. And um, last year on this retreat. Uh, I remember speaking more about global dukkha, and this one is a little closer to home. So five years ago, I sat sat a retreat, and uh, I was was a yogi, and um, and it was a it was a beautiful retreat. It was just like a flood of beautiful dharma, and I remember like sort of drowning in it, you know, in a, in a good way, but drowning in it. And it's at the end of the retreat, and it's a group of about 30 people in a big open room. 
and the teacher gives a set of instructions. Um, Pair up with somebody. Stand 15 feet apart from them facing each other. And then walk towards each other with the option of, of either person signaling stop or slow down or keep coming. And the idea was to um, explore kind of connections and boundaries and intimacy and the whole relational field. What happens when we turn towards another uh, in the clarity of awareness and the poignancy of retreat? And maybe you can imagine it right now, like all that might come up in that, right? You felt some bit of it in just doing the the triads earlier. And, okay, there's all that, what do we, what do we, you know, just those hearing those instructions, imagining yourself in it, the kind of longing or need or tenderness or awkwardness or accommodation or boundaries or what do, what do I want? What do they want? All of this, right? And, um... So I'm standing there and I'm like, I got to find a partner. (laughs) 1989, middle school dance. The gas pedal of the system, fully depressed. (laughs) The brake, also fully depressed. (laughs) And I'm in, it was a good retreat. I am in a good space, right? And I very, yeah, just quite open. And I'm just like, I am not going to go slobber on some poor yogi, like a kind of like dumb meta dog, just like all, which is my spirit animal. That is my spirit animal. So I just stand there kind of frozen and uh, I just wait for somebody to come up to me. <laughs> and I, um, I remember, I remember I, it was, it was somebody I, I knew I didn't have a, a, you know, a deep kind of relationship with, but somebody I knew and had very warm feelings towards and, um, it's like, okay, how, how does it feel to be in their presence? We now, now have separated by those 15 feet and looking at each other. And, and, um, and you know, one of the questions is like, okay, how close can you get and stay connected to yourself? Right? 
what does it mean to be, you know, deeply porous, but not abandon yourself? And what happens in the gaze, you know, in the gaze, like we're, we're seeing them, but we're also really seeing the movements of our own mind. And yeah, we try to attune to who, who are they, not to fill the unknown with our own projections, but also you're, you just, you're seeing some of your own mind, the this, this screen, the other functions as a screen on which the, the kind of shadow of our own mind is cast. And my experience in just in being with, with uh, you know, with, teachers, you know, people I've practiced with, is the more free they get, the more dramatic the kind of emptiness of the other functions as a screen on which I see the movements of my mind. And so we're noticing all that our mind is doing, and we're trying to, to really see the other clearly as clearly as we can to really look what, like what is in those eyes and you know somebody Laura was sharing it during the, the kind of debrief from the triads like the face the face is so potent we miss it in the busyness of our life or the familiarity of our habit minds whereby People, people we really care about are like sometimes behind two feet of like plexiglass of concepts and familiarity and sort of shorthand. And sometimes um, I'll just look at someone that I love when they don't see that I'm looking at them. You know? So they're like free of kind of self-consciousness. You just like look at somebody, look at their face as they're really just in their life, in their mind, feelings, all of it. And as we get sensitive, it's like there's a whole ethics in their face. There's a whole you know, ethics in your face. And we start to become uh, sensitive to uh, the kind of ethical potency of just looking at another being. Stephen Batchelor, uh, even when uh, no words are spoken, your face calls out to me. The first word of the face, says the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, is the thou shall not kill. The first word of the face is thou shall not kill. We recognize this call because we hear it in the echo of our own deepest fears and longings. Another's face shocks us into a helpless silence in which we are called to respond from the same depth within ourselves that we witness in their plea. 
the roots of empathy, compassion, and love lie in that intimate encounter where we hear the other wordlessly say, do not kill me. Do not, um, do not abuse me, do not deceive me, do not betray me, do not insult me, do not waste my time, do not try to possess me, do not bear me ill will, do not misconstrue me. So what do we see when we look deeply? And what, what does another see in us? in the kind of um, the intimacy of that gaze, all of the ego's accoutrements are just utterly meaningless. We don't care about them in the eyes of the other and they don't care about ours. There's um, some research on like the theory of mind where, you know, kids, before they develop the capacity to imagine that the other might have judgments and views and harshness in their own mind, ideas about them, they sing and dance in a kind of very disinhibited way. But when this capacity that is important, this theory of mind, I can imagine you judging me, when that starts to come online, when I become an object in your mind, the effect is shame, proneness. And just in the triads or in, you know, our just imagining this exercise I'm describing, the evo- you know, there is nothing stronger than the gaze of another to evoke the sense of self. And... It is um, very natural, but the arising of self-clinging is a form of static that disrupts intimacy. And so in this relational world, as we, we feel the kind of gaze of the other, it helps illuminate the architecture of self-view. The, all the pros and cons of me, what I want you to see, what, I, what must remain hidden. And at an even deeper level, like what does it, what does it feel like to feel that they see me? Gazing across that space, the sense that they see me. There's the subtle pain of duality, the subtle alienation. And to even feel like we reside behind our eyes is a kind of liability. And a, um, it cuts against some of these the deepest forms of intimacy. So we start walking towards each other and, um, and it's like, okay, how, how open can things become? You know, we're both, you know, had done this retreat and it was the, you know, very kind of 
fertile, you know, a lot of dharma momentum, just like you have. And uh, and so we, we start approaching each other, and it's like uh, very... I can still see him, you know, I can see, still see colors and forms, but the kind of predominant perception is just vast open space pervaded by metta. And the visual field is, is um, just really vivid, kind of luminous and it feels like everything is run through with space. And so we, we start the, the kind of, there's, there's some measure of self-forgetting, we'd say. We start to open, and then the, the kind of perception of the other occurs within the same field as self-referentiality. And so the, the sense of, um, the sense of, um, yeah, there's, there's, in in a sense, maybe we say there's no distance. There's no distance. There's space, but there's no distance. And where, who am I then? Who are we then? When, Bahia, for you and the scene is merely the scene, you will not be with that. When you are not with that, then Bahia, you will not be, not be in that. When you are not in that, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. This is a kind of state of um, of a very deeply um, forgetting, forgetting oneself, uh, who you are, you know, where you are, how you've been. Every self story. It's not like they all become false instantaneously. It's just that they are a million miles away and utterly irrelevant to the project of living. Nothing is contested or shed or obliterated just a million miles away. And almost everything falls away except the, the knowing. And the knowing is deeply satiating. Just to know is is enough. And there's a, a philosopher Metzinger who describes uses the language of a kind of um, uh, as more and more falls away from the phenomenal field. There's a kind of combination of wakefulness, and then uses this this word epistemic, which is a philosophical word around knowing the capacity to know. It says, wakefulness paired with unpartitioned epistemic space. Unpartitioned. No borders, no meaningful lines, just knowing, knowing. 
and this is very alive. No, no kind of like foreground, background. If anything, maybe we say it's like it's all background. The totality of the field is background. And it feels like this is very fertile, fecund ground, ground for understanding, for insight. And in a way, intimacy isn't even the right word because that implies two, and this is one or zero or something, but not two. And um, and so this this continues to unfold. We're getting we're getting closer. We're getting closer, and then there's like this very kind of subtle sense in me that crept back in of, uh, you know, of kind of like, I, I got identified, yeah? And the identification was this. I am a sensitive new age guy and we should get really close. and we got too close (laughs) and like the all the metaphor it just like that just dissolved yeah dissolved and it was like um the yeah, there was like some, uh, you know, the kind of sense of accommodation, of enacting some self-view, right? Right, the mind got, was gripped by something. All of a sudden, I'm now, now kind of out of a sense of presence and into negotiating, accommodating, right? Not wanting to, uh, you know, offend or maybe wanting to, wanting to, you know, um, to be the thing that I think I am, to be, to in you know, to express that point of identification, to not betray that, right? And then all the space collapsed. So the sense of self is a kind of like the locus of insufficiency and also what disrupts need fulfillment. So I associate the, you know, and I'm not not trying to demonize the, the self, I'm using it in a kind of particular way, but I associate self with kind of like Rigidity, routine, uh, inflexibility, grasping or aversion to any aspect of the self-pattern, a sensory event, thought, uh, you know, feelings, the sense of I amness, 
grasping or aversion to enter any, any aspect of the self pattern carries a burden of dukkha and is a cause of like, cannot be the ground of intimacy and connection. Ego to ego contact is, is not actually intimate. My, my ego is never a blessing for you, you know? Egoic pressure kind of leaks out of us. Yeah, it leaks out of us and requires some measure of accommodation from others. You actually have to choose to kind of like indulge or deflect my own egoic pressure my subtle demand that you capitulate to my self-view. Make sense? It's like, it's not, it's not such, it's, you know, it's like, of course the ego doesn't even want to be revealed in these mechanisms, but that is the demand. That is the demand is I want you to actually affirm the way in which I cling to myself. And you have to deflect or capitulate. And that is a burden that I don't want to ask of you. And that is a burden in the relational field. And so to, to, truly, to truly be safe for another, we need a kind of you know, this aspiration, may I be safe, may I be a refuge, may you be a refuge, you know, may my heart be a refuge for all beings, right, as in the suttas, like, to be safe for another entails a very deep understanding, integration of anatta. Uh, Because wherever there is self-clinging, the, the kind of hallmark of ego is defensiveness. And wherever there is defensiveness, there can be aggression. And so to actually be radically safe for one another, we deepen this insight into the, the emptiness of self. But deepening the insight does not lead to a kind of sense of you know, of blandness or it's, it's not that we all become identical or something like that. It's not, it's not like that at all. It's, it's, it leads to a sense of play and delight, openness. Nietzsche said um, that maturity is reacquiring the, the kind of seriousness that one had as a child at play. And we become kind of confident enough, relationally confident enough that we don't need kind of to 
structure interactions in a way. You, you can't play if you're curating the self. You know, you cannot play. And the denser and more frozen the sense of self is, the stronger the craving and aversion is to any aspect of the self-pattern, the less we can play. The Winnicott, it is in playing and only in playing that uh, the individual child or adult is able to be creative and to use the whole personality. And it is only in being creative that the individual discovers the self. Psychotherapy takes place at the overlap of two areas of playing, that of the patient and that of the therapist. Psychotherapy has to do with two people playing together. The corollary of this is that where playing is not possible, then the work done by the therapist is directed towards bringing the patient from a state of not being able to play into a state of being able to play. A state of not being able to play into a state of being able to play. And a lot about that can be said for Dharma, Dharma practice, where can we play? Where is the self-seriousness such that we cannot play? And can we, can we play in our foibles? Can we play amidst our zones of clinging, amidst the tenderness of our own heart? Can we play amidst our limitations and neurosis? Maggie Nelson talking about Winnicott. Winnicott's notion of feeling real is so moving to me. One can aspire to feel real. One can help others to feel real. And one can oneself feel real. A feeling Winnicott describes as the collected primary sensation of aliveness. Quote, the aliveness of the body tissues and working of body functions, including the heart's action and breathing, which makes a spontaneous gesture possible. She says, for Winnicott, feeling real is not reactive to external stimuli, nor is it not an identity. It is a sensation, a sensation that spreads among other things, it makes one want to live. So this deep sense of, of embodiment, of realness, a sensation that spreads, that is not an identity. And in the context of relationship, we help others feel real, we feel real. This realness that's been discussed, like this realness is is a, a kind of dimension of anatta. And meditation, meditation is uh, perhaps also a way of feeling real, of feeling real, a sensation 
that spreads and among other things makes one want to live. And so as, um, as the, the kind of egoic framework becomes less and less of an organizing principle in our life, we feel uh, there is play, we feel real. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's like, no, anatta actually helps us feel more true. And it opens many doors to love, to connection. Because we, we, we are now like freed up, actually. to We, we no longer have the kind of um, back-breaking job of curating the sense of self all the time, right? The the kind of uh, the points of identification, the sacred ground that the pros and cons of Matthew that starts to kind of soften that that no longer stands as a form of static in connecting heart to heart. So we're not trying to prove, we're not, we're like really stepping out of this realm. We all know that sense of trying to prove something about ourselves to ourselves or to another. The kind of trap of that. And the, it's very fertile ground for defensiveness, for anger, for views to get so entrenched, so charged with egoic energy that we're willing to fight. Rachel Koskler writer said, um, an argument is only an emergency of self-definition after all. Yeah. we're freed up to delight in the goodness of others. It is not intimidating. Gil, uh, Gil Franzdahl said, um, in enlightenment, you don't get free, you free everything else. You free everything else. And uh, it's touching for a number of reasons, but it's like um, you need a self to hate, but you don't need that to love. You need to fixate the self of the other in order to hate them. You need to essentialize and pare them down. You need to make them, identify them, fixate them into a thing. And we try to like hang our rage on the kind of center coat hook of the person's being. But the Buddha says, no. There's nowhere to hang your hate. We free everything else. And so, um, 
this this insight has implications not just for for fixating the ourself, but fixating the other. So this is um, around connection and not merging, you know. Uh, but um, the talk, all this talk of oneness is not the end of the story. Uh, William James says, nothing includes everything or dominates over everything. The word and trails along after every sentence. The melting of boundaries is one perception, often skillful. The reinforcing, it's just a perception. The reinforcing of boundaries, the differentiation is another perception. And that too is often skillful. Becoming freer, is often about flexibility rather than doing more of one thing. Our minds want more of one thing. Tell me what to do. Tell me just to march to the beat of this Dharma drum. Let me just keep doing that until I get freer and freer. And it's often that we have to find the Dharma path between wholesome extremes. We have to bob and weave. You know, normally the middle path uh, is like the middle path between unwholesome extremes, self-mortification, self-indulgence. But the Dharma path is also found, you know, as we weave between wholesome extremes, between non-duality and differentiation. So I raise this because it's like how 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 do we meet the kind of the pain of people we love without it spinning us into some kind of oblivion and I thought of um Carl Rogers defining empathy as like living within the world of the patient as if it were one's own without losing the as if condition. Yeah. Without losing the as if you lose the as if condition and it becomes a kind of emotional contagion. And for, for me, like the pain of people I care about these, you know, people where you have these like very deep karmic bonds. Their pain spins me in a way that that I find bewildering. And as much effort as I've put into like being conscious, it still has so much potency, right? And I really lose the as if condition. And my words or what I say or do or whatever, it might masquerade as compassion, but it's actually just a testament to my intolerance of their suffering. 
the urgency of needing to relieve it. And often it's my intolerance of, you know, their bad habits that I also struggle with in my own heart-mind. And in a way, you know, it makes sense that as children, the suffering, for example, of a a parent or a caretaker or something, that is not a cause for compassion. That is a kind of existential threat to see the crumbling of the omnipotence of a parent, to see that they don't know either that samsara is not governable, that is not a cause for compassion, but a cause for fear. And so when we've, um, when we've entrusted our heart to another by choice or by birth, it's like all of their suffering feels like our business. And yet compassion is not a kind of insistence that someone change. And it's not even insistence that someone stop suffering. It is love, love, a non-possessive love in the face of suffering. And so here we shift from maybe a perspective of oneness or something like that to differentiation, love and space, love and space. Octavio Paz said, um, love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. Love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. And so the equanimity that uh, we've practiced is in some way we can think of, uh, for me, is it helps purify my compassion of its compulsivity, its clinging, its erasure of the first noble truth, that the equanimity has to somehow counterbalance the compassion that otherwise gets too too enmeshed, too compulsive. And in some sense, it is, um, it is equanimity, equanimity with the limitations of our own power. It is equanimity with maybe the most difficult human state there is to open to, namely helplessness. But if we can even get a little bit free, a little space, maintain the as if, our compassion actually becomes more effective, not less when it's purified by equanimity. And so 
we have to dance through all of this to, um, to, to love ourselves, to accept ourselves deeply, to accept ourselves so deeply that it no longer becomes personal, to merge to for, for the lines, the differentiations, to utterly dissolve for the delight and intimacy and openness and nourishment to arise and then to differentiate and to, to, uh, to free everything else, to honor, honor, love, love as the revelation, the other person's freedom. And we just uh, keep going. Sit for a moment. Just picking up anything that is uh, onward leading for you. And uh, leaving all the rest aside. So uh, thank you. Um, just to, uh, I think uh, Emily shared it, but uh, just the for tomorrow we'll uh, we'll gather back for it's movement. You're welcome to come back and we'll chant. And um, uh, tomorrow morning we'll be rather than eight forty-five do room cleaning as was described and. Uh, will be here for the closing session at nine. Okay, enjoy your evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.